let's sneak back to chapter 1 for just a second. For verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Uh, and, and Lord willing, that'll happen today. We are in a tough passage. I think Schreiner says that these two verses, two of them that are in our passage, may be the toughest ones he believes to uh, try to understand or interpret in all of Romans. And uh, so that uh, that said something, especially coming from Triner, I thought. Uh, and so we are wading into a deeper end of the pool. Um, one thing, Josh, I would like for you to add, uh, see your insights here on verse 5 that might help us. And then I want to cap just a little bit on things that we've talked about in the past and then get to our passage. But before we get to 18 to 20 here in chapter 1, tell us how verse 5 may have something to do with today. Yeah, so verse 5 of chapter 1 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. I think this phrase, obedience of faith, is really a lot of what 6 through 11 is going to be talking about with the uh, with the believer, I think, um, in chapter 2. So, yeah, maybe we can get more into it later. But I do think that phrase, obedience of faith, is uh, the works that are talked about in 6 through 11 are referring to obedience that comes from faith. So what the believer does, rooted in the faith given by God. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the way Paul argues through Romans, I think that's going to be a fascinating thing. And... Uh, why it's kind of fun to go week by week and, and uh, spend a year in here, invest a year, I guess you would say, in, in God's word here, as it is going to be, there's going to be so many connections, and I'm sure most most of which we're not even going to get to or we're not even making, but uh, that was a new one um, for me that, um, that I guess Lawson uh, came up with. Um, Thomas, could you read... We cannot forget 16 and 17 in chapter 1, um, just because this is the gospel, and we're not really going to get to the gospel again until we get to 321, and that's four more weeks, and so we have three more weeks of bad news after this one. We are really in week four of seven of the bad news here. Uh, about our sin. Could you remind us of 16 and 17? Might be the theme of all sure. Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Good deal. Thanks. So yeah, the righteousness of God, righteousness from God, that may be the theme of the whole book. And then, that is by faith. By faith in Christ, if you could call that a sub-theme, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We know that about the Gentiles. They are truth suppressors, even though they know the truth, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, uh, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So the Gentile, we saw in chapter 1, is without excuse. And 
I am still shocked by verse 32. 32 is a hard one for me to shake or to, I believe I've been shifted in how much the unbeliever truly knows. Uh, let's read 32 as a reminder. Though they know God's righteous decree. And that part, I think we kind of get from 18 to 22. And that those who practice such things deserve to die. That continues to get me. The unbeliever knows God's righteous decree and they know that they deserve to die because they are not. Uh, and I think all of this is playing into today. That's why we're kind of going back to this. That that they realize they deserve to die. So what do they do rather than repent? They try to get others to sin with them. I think that dulls their conscience a little, don't you think? Because what they do there, they not only do them, but then they uh, give approval to those who practice them. We saw in verse 5, and this is where we kind of closed up last week, just a heart-wrenching verse. For every unbeliever you know, I, I hope that this lands um, on, on our hearts. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself um, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's every unbeliever all day long is storing up wrath just with every thought, with every action, with every word. That's where they're at. And so now 6 to 10, 6 to 11 really, um, we're going to divide this up sort of into two parts. 6 to 11 now gives us kind of a um, an indication of what Grant explained kind of the two different ways to look at this maybe and then we'll we'll tackle it okay yeah so uh, coming back into this uh, chapter two was pretty fun because there's uh, I guess two ways that you could approach verses six through um, 11 as well as 12 through 16 um, so I'll just go into it but I don't think and I'll come back and show at the end I don't think it really changes the overall argument that Paul is making uh, going from chapter 2 to chapter 3, but there's two different ways that you can see this here. Starting in verse 6, I'll just go ahead and read through verse 11. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And so depending on which commentary you have, you may see that uh, some say that, uh, the, that those that are seeking for glory and honor and immortality and those that are uh, will experience tribulation, those are two... Um, groups of people that uh, he's primarily communicating the standard by which we're judged. The other view that I think, you know, Josh, you hold to, and Mr. Jerry and Mark would say that the ones who are seeking for glory and honor and immortality are actually believers. They're doing those good works by faith rather than this being primarily just the standard by which we're judged. So uh, the one view is put put forward by uh, Douglas Mew, just summarize it really quickly right here because I don't think it's super important to spend you know, a long time mm -hmm. going through each one, but I think it is important to try to do our due diligence to see what Scripture is actually saying. So Mew would be communicating that in this section, 
um, Paul is setting forth a hypothetical argument that these are the two standards by which we'll judge. Those that do good works will, will have eternal life. Those that have bad works will have eternal judgment. And so um, he's setting up that eventually none really fall into that good category, that nobody does good. We get to that in three, chapter 3, verse 20. But the, the flow of the argument would be uh, salvation for both Jew and Gentile is available only by doing good, verses 6, 11, and 13. The power of sin prevents both Jew and Gentile from doing good. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9 and 19, and so therefore no one can be saved by doing good. Chapter 3, verse 20. So that would be the one view, and then the other would be that uh, probably held by more people that we know, like MacArthur, Sproul, and even some of us here at North Avenue, that um, the judgment by works is based off of that being the fruit of our salvation, that there's an assumption of faith there for the believer who will be judged according to his works that being um, the fruit showing that there is actually a, an abiding faith. Good. And what we know for sure, what we know for sure is what Paul is not saying is that you could ever be saved by good works. That we know. He is thoroughly um, talks about that in so many other parts of not just Romans, but, you know, all through Scripture. So no, you know, no one's holding to that. Right. Um, for yeah, sure. For whichever view you take, there is no uh, right way to read it that Paul is teaching, you know, contrary to his other passages, that salvation is based off of works rather than by faith alone. And I don't think that it really changes the argument either way. You know, we have the introduction, then we have the rest of chapter 1 where he's introducing the theme of salvation by faith alone in chapter 16, I mean in, in verse 16, and then he's going through the, the depravity of the Gentiles. Uh, and the state that you know we all find ourselves in, and then um, starting in chapter two, he's turning like we've said in the past, both barrels on maybe the Jewish uh, religious people of the time who would you know say bless bless those Gentiles' hearts. They they don't have the law; they're just lawless and depraved. But then Paul would be saying that just merely having the law doesn't put you in any sort of special category because God because God judges impartially whether you have the law or not, it's the doers of those of the law that's righteous. So he would be turning, you know, both barrels on the religious person as well, and then building into chapter three that really, regardless if you uh, that no one can can uphold the law, Jew or Gentile, that all are condemned under the law and that no one is righteous. And he spends a lot of time in chapter three building that and then we get to the good news in chapter three, verse twenty one, that there's salvation apart from the law in Christ through faith in him. And that just builds to say, you know, how can we be saved? If, if, if we're totally depraved and there's no hope for us, how can one be saved? And Paul's building to that in chapter 3. And then continuing in chapter 3 and even in, I think, really exciting in chapter 5, it's, you know, how can God just forgive us? You know, how can he be just and just forgive us? When it, someone's got to pay for the sin, and then you know, that's, that's getting into the gospel. Yep. Wait till May. And we'll be there. But already in March 26, we will get to some good news at the end of chapter 3. But, it, boy, it takes a while to get there. Which does just show how important it is that we do camp on the bad news. He spent so much time on this. Would you, Josh, read chapter 6 to verse, I mean, chapter 2, 6 to 11 here. Um, I'm going to give you the flow of thought from Shriner. Um, and his thought, and then we will work through a few of those verses before we get to an equally meaty 12 to 16. 
Sure. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Good. So, in uh, in Grant, and what he's talking about uh, a little bit earlier here, if we hold to the fact that um, that Paul is really just agreeing with what James says in James two um, twenty two through twenty five, really, that our salvation, true salvation, true faith in Christ, will always result in good works. You see, verse 6 then is a statement that then will be uh, really uh, commented on, or a commentary really then will be from 7 um, to 11. He will render to each one according to his works. And that doesn't mean we're saved by works, but here is the way um, Schreiner ex uh, explains kind of how to think through this. And I think it's really good, and I will read it. Hopefully, it makes better sense. Those who do not repent are storing up for wrath for themselves. We've seen that in verse 5. So then he goes to say, because God will repay each person according to his or her works. So even though we are saved by faith alone, we saw even last week in Revelation 20 where we finished that it, we will be judged according to what we've done. All right, that will be, uh, the judgment will be based on that. That is... Those who seek eternal life by persevering in good works will be granted eternal life. But those who persist in unrighteousness, verse 8, will face God's wrath. And every person, whether Jew or Greek, verse 9 here, who practices evil will experience tribulation and distress. And then go back from 7 and 10, and this is what makes this a little bit hard, 7 and 10, we believe, are talking about that true believer. But those who practice good, whether Jew or Greek, will experience glory, honor, and peace. And so any thoughts, guys, on um, 7 to 10 that uh, is talking about those people that are truly believers that are shown by um, those good works. Any thoughts on any of those words there or, or um, insights that he has? Josh, you got some good stuff on the yeah. yellow paper. <laughs> um, I do think it's important just to say and, and reiterate what you're saying, Jerry, that, um, I mean, the, these topics are really important. Justification and judgment. Justification being based on faith alone and then judgment being based according to works we're not saying that uh, the grounds for our justification is in the works. The grounds for justification is in Christ, union with him by faith. Um, so it's not, our works are not the cause of our salvation. Um, but I do think what Paul's getting at here in these verses is that there is a righteous judgment based on works. And those works are the fruit of faith. They're, they're really the evidence of faith. You might say it's the effect of our justification. And so real, genuine, true faith will result in 
uh, these good works. Um, and I don't think he's talking about perfectionism here. I think he's talking about an aim, a direction of our life being oriented towards good works as a result of uh, faith. And I think these, these works truly reveal our internal state. They reveal what's going on in the heart, what we believe, and they show what's truly there over the course of a lifetime. Great. Yeah, and we see that with Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8, for grace... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we see from Paul right there, salvation apart from works, uh, fulfilled in our evidence by life that is obedient to him through good works. Good. And Paul, we believe here, is just saying, oftentimes people say, Paul and James are disagreeing, right? And that's why sometimes people uh, kind of hesitate to go to James 2 because it sounds like that could be salvation through works. Let me read what James says, and you maybe, if you want to, you can turn there. You can just listen because he's pretty strong, James 2.22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Talking about Abraham here. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that he was a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you took that verse out of context, super controversial, right? Verse 24. But in the context here, in, in all of what scripture, we always use scripture to explain scripture, to interpret scripture, we see that... Um, it's just what you guys have said. These works are evidence of a true faith. And then the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers that were sent out by another way. As for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So we believe that, that by uh, true faith will always produce um, these good works. And so we see two paths this isn't the only and this will be throughout romans i love the contrast that he gives here there is a huge difference isn't there on how the believer and unbeliever live verse 7 again verse 7 and 10 describe the true believer to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life is that us Seeking God's glory. We want everything about our lives to bring him honor, to bring him glory. Um, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew and also for the Greek. Um, these two different paths, because you look at verse um, 8 and 9, look at the, the, the path of the unbeliever. Um, and then Boyce commented on these two different paths people would go, and uh, I'm going to read what he says. But um, verse 8 and 9 uh, show us the other path. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be once again wrath and fury. You might remember from 118, the wrath of God is coming on the Gentile. And then on 2.5, don't forget, that wrath again now this time on the more churchy people right on the on the jew 
those who had heard the law, there's going to be wrath and fury. There's going to be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And once again, we just see that Paul pulls no punches when it comes to talking about God's wrath. And we have to, too. That that has to be, I learned that from Alan, that has to be something that we do is we cannot leave the wrath of God out of the gospel. That that is part of what is coming for the unbeliever. And and even though it's sometimes more comfortable to leave that out, that is that is a vital part of things. So how do you get off the wrong path? Um, I love these five things. First of all, you recognize that you're on it. How do you get off the wrong path? You recognize that you're on the wrong path. Um, Grant, I didn't warn you about this, but man, when you were on the wrong path for a while, you didn't even realize it, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, immediately before God put you on the right path? Yeah, I think I started recognizing it as I was <clears throat> being saved. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that was the, for a while, how long had you believed you were on the right path when you were on the wrong path? For a while, right? Forever. Yeah, my entire life, I think. Yeah. For as and, long as I can remember. And that was almost the first step, if I'm remembering your testimony, was to kind of say, hey, wait a second. And some of you have experienced that, too. And what I love about, I think it's Mark's teaching, the way the Lord uses Mark, is he's kind of polarizing. It's hard to sit on the fence when you're listening that to, God, to the Lord's word, God's word, through Mark each week. There, you say, wait a second here. I have got to be one or the other. I cannot be sitting on the fence here. And that's sort of what got you? Like, Yeah, I, I don't, it's hard to parcel it out now, but yeah. I, you know, I think I had a profession of faith, but I had no good works. I had no evidence, no fruit. Nothing was really different about me. It was just uh, something that I attested to, but not something that I lived. And so when I came here and was surrounded by believers that were, um, my own age, because I had parents who were very solid believers, taught clearly the the uh, the word of God. So I don't want to put that down in any way. It's just I was self deceived and didn't have ears to hear, and that's a tricky combination when you have both of those uh, to be self deceived and also because you think you have it and then you're hearing it and you're not listening. So <clears throat> when I came and heard Mark clearly, you know, proclaim the gospel and teach clearly what it means to be a true believer. And what that looks like in everyday life, I started to see. I mean, it was at the same time God was changing my heart. So there was this increased desire for his word. And then also through that, a recognition that things weren't quite right the way I was living. Yeah. Ah, that's just, you can't get enough of those testimonies. First of all, you have to recognize you're on the wrong path. And then you had to admit that the wrong path, I like this by voice, will never turn into the right path. That thing's never going to be the right way to go. And I think the unbeliever, sadly, will aim down that road, and they go down that road, and there's like, surely this is going to get better. And it doesn't. It is a downhill spiral for them the rest until, because they're just storing up wrath, right? There isn't anything good about the life of the unbeliever. They think so. I think self-deceived Grant that you said twice when you were just talking right there. So what do you do? You have to turn around and repent. So what the unbeliever has to do. It's a whole 180 degree turn, right? Turn around and repent. 
look to Jesus, race to the cross, and follow Christ. And so in the outline of Romans, it's so beautifully done. One to three is going to show us our sin. Four and five are going to talk about how we're truly saved, how we're going to be justified. Six to eight then are going to talk about how we're sanctified. Now that we're believers, what do we do to become more like Christ? How is God going to do that process in us, that process of sanctification? That's so beautiful. Then we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and uh, how he's treated Israel and how he's gone about all of history in 9 to 11. And then the practical side uh, we'll finish up with the 12 to 16 to say, okay, now what's the application now that that has, uh, now that that's happened? And so um, when you look just shortly again in 8 and 9, but for those who are self-seeking, and I think when Grant, when you say self-deceived, I think that there is that overall quality, don't you think, of the unbeliever that they're just about themselves. They're self-seeking. And all of us continue to struggle with that, I think, even as believers. But that that primarily describes the unbeliever. Josh, could you comment on that? You see that probably um, even as you've thought through counseling, that there's kind of a self-seeking there, isn't there? I do think so. And I think these traits, 7 and 10, the believer, 8 and 9, the unbeliever, that there is a total contrast there with what they're pursuing, their fundamental outlook on life. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, Paul notes that we'll be obedient to something. We'll be mm -hmm. obedient to unrighteousness, our own selfish desires, self-centered pursuits in life, or we'll be obedient to Christ. And I think it's it's kind of a false narrative that the unbeliever is free, um, that yeah. they can do whatever they want, but really they're just enslaved to their own selfish, fleshly desires, you know, totally self-seeking in everything that they do, um, contrasted with the believer who is is pursuing a life of obedience to Christ and glad submission to the Savior. <clears throat> yeah, that's good. Deacon Persever tell June, chapter 6, talks a ton about them being slaves to sin. I don't think they feel like that. There's, again, the self-deception. That's such a, such a key there. So when you get to um, verse 11, for God shows no partiality, and um, we see in verse 12 here, and I think that this is kind of key, that the unbeliever is condemned not for what they don't know, but for what they do know. Now, that's kind of, a, again, a, a interesting and kind of a, maybe a newer thought pattern to me that I hadn't noticed so much is because oftentimes people will say, hey, wait a second, God can't judge the somebody in whatever Africa, North Korea that have never heard the gospel. All right. But what we see in this next coming up verses here, 12 through 16, is that, and now I'm going back to 132, that the unbeliever does know quite a bit. Even if they have not had the law, even if they don't have special revelation that from scripture, they do know God's righteous decree. They do know 
that they deserve death. The unbeliever does. And this passage, I think, now starts to touch on that a little bit. And, uh, boy, um, and when you start in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So we're talking about, again, the Jew and the Gentile, those who have the law and those who don't have the law, but God's judgment is what he's proven here is fair. Okay, now let me ask you two different things because I found this pretty interesting and, and um, helpful, and maybe I'll read um, what Triner says again in, in how to think through 12 to 16. But what might have been the argument for the, uh, for the unbeliever, for the Gentile, the Gentile unbeliever, what might have they said? And they're going to say that really here pretty clearly of why the, God's judgment isn't fair to them. Why might they raise their hand and say, wait a second, this isn't fair? Because what? For the Gentile, what did they not have? The law, right? They didn't have that. And they, so they may say, well, we don't know enough. We don't know enough to really be, be judged here. He's going to put that argument to bed in a hurry. Okay? Secondly, for the Jew... Might why for the unbelieving Jew might what might have their argument been? Because they're gonna ask it, they're gonna also say, Hey, hold on, we don't deserve judgment. Like just like Grant was saying, they're so excited that Paul's going after the Gentile. Paul, go get him. Those heathens, yes, they deserve it. And then you remember 2 1, they says, um, therefore. You have no excuse. He changes it. Turns both guns again on the Jew. What might have they said? What were they counting on that they weren't going to be condemned or be judged? Their deeds. The, the what? Their deeds. Okay, good. They were circumcised. They were Jews. We're the chosen ones. What do you mean that we could be condemned? What do you mean that we could be judged? We're it. We're God's people. Right? And then he's going to go to say, oh, no, 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 no. No, not unless you know Jesus. And uh, would you read Grant um, 12 to 16, and, and we start kind of thinking through those? For all, have, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay. So, let me take you through what Schreiner says, because again, I, I believe that this will be helpful. God is impartial. So in other words, that's from verse 11, verse 12. In other words, those who sin without the law will perish without the law. And those who sin with the law will be judged through the law. Okay? So the judgment is fair for those without the law, 
the Gentiles, and those with the law, the Jew. Verse, verse 13 then also commences um, in this. In this case, a reason for what is said in 12b is provided through Paul's intention to um, indict the uh, unbelieving Jew. The Jews should not deceive themselves into believing that um, the possession of the law is a badge of favored status. So they're trying to say, hey, wait a second, we have the law, so we're in. As if they would be exempt from judgment, because they're not. The reason for this is that a mere hearing of the law does not constitute righteousness before God. Right? We've got to be not just hearers of the law, but doers as well. Going back to James. The same sort of idea that we get here. So only those who do what the law says will be declared righteous. That is what Grant or Josh just read there, 13b. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And the connection between verse 12 and 13 then is as follows. And this is because this is complicated. Um, I want us to think through this. Those who sin with the law will be judged through the law. That's 12b. For the hearers of the law are not justified before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Okay? So the hearers of the law are not justified. That's the main point in verse 13. So the Jews who had the gift of the Torah should not think they're better than the Gentiles who don't possess the, the Torah. Now I think, let's stop for a second and kind of take a look at our own hearts. Are we sometimes kind of uh, self-righteous, right? And, and um, almost look down on the uh, unbeliever in that same way. Remember, that's who he's really after here of the Jews because of what two things are hypocritical and they're judgmental. And they're judgmental about all of these things. And they're hypocrites in that they're doing the exact same thing. Um, that they're being judgmental to the, um, to the, to the Gentiles about. Um, so then, the Gentiles, and this is what's super fascinating to me. The Gentiles possess the law too even if they lack the written law. That's from verse 14. And we're going to come back to these here. The Gentiles show they have the law because they do what the law commands, 14b. It follows then that the law has been written on the hearts of the Gentiles. Now, that's a controversial line again. And Grant, I might have you explain the two ways that to see this, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but that is normally new covenant language, that the law has been written on the hearts. You would say, well, that is a believer, right? That the law is written on their hearts, and that is where Schreiner leans, but the interesting thing is he didn't lean that five years ago. Like, there's this, he's made a shift, and he's saying, now I believe he's talking about true believing Gentiles. I don't think I've quite got there yet. I think he might still be talking about the unbeliever, 
But Grant, do you know the? Can you help us with kind of the different uh, argument? I can try. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't do a good job on the last one, but they. I guess Schreiner would say, based on that, that they are a law to themselves. Um, they show that they have the works of the law written on their hearts, similar to Jeremiah, um, that this is a believing Gentile who is, by the Spirit's power, able to do uh, fulfill the works of the law through the Spirit's power, which would be us today. But then most, I think, in the way I lean would be that this is simply showing that uh, Gentiles have, uh, by nature, an understanding of what God requires. They know it's wrong, or unbelieving Gentiles, us even before we were believers, we knew it was wrong to steal, to murder, to lie, to commit adultery. These things, uh, most people have some sort of understanding that that's probably not right, depending on the level of their conscience and how seared they are. And so what this is simply saying is that God has put in the heart of anybody through their conscience an ability to know right from wrong, even though they don't have the written law uh, to reference to. Yeah. Josh, you want to comment on that? What's kind of the, they, from 14, there's a moral compass, isn't there? And then in 15, there's the conscience. Yeah, I, I, I guess some theologians call this natural law, that there's this God-given intuition through the faculty of the conscience given to all men. And, um, yeah, I found this interesting from Stott. He said, in, in all evangelism, I find it a constant encouragement to say to myself, the other person's conscience is on my side. And uh, I thought that was interesting, that human beings, there's this innate sort of moral compass that does know right from wrong, generally speaking. Um, I think people have a, have that God-given knowledge of right and wrong, and um, yeah. <clears throat> Don't you think that's maybe helps explain why in 32, what do they want? They want other people to sin with them. I wonder if that's just a sign of their conscience. Like it doesn't feel very good to be sinning all by myself. But if I can gang another 12, 15, two other people to sin with me, then I feel a little bit better about it. And, and I, I, that seems to uh, help explain why the unbeliever sometimes is, is in that. Um, is in that situation. If I'm taking a step back here, there's five reasons that um, that judgment is, or five ways that they're judged. According to truth, from verse 2, it's proportionate to their sin in 2-5. Okay, 2-2 would say it's according to truth. 2-5 would say it's in proportion to their sin, right? They're, God's storing up wrath. They're storing up wrath, God's wrath, in 2.5. It's according to righteousness in 2.5. It's impartial. God's judgment is impartial to 11. And then now we see that it is according to these people's deeds. All right, so that's kind of the the idea they again their moral compass they have that it, that's been given to them by God they're conscious there and and I thought this was kind of interesting that Doriani he summed it up with uh, these five statements everyone will give like this whole part here and then we'll come to 16 everyone will give an account of his or her life okay it will be fair because some had scripture 
and the rest had their conscience. But it'll be fair to either one, who, no matter who you are, no matter where you're born, no matter what. Um, a person's level of light or knowledge will be a factor in their judgment. The judgment will include the secrets of our thoughts and motives, and we'll come to that in a second, as well as our words and deeds. Um, and, and really, this number four is the bottom line. Because the Lord knows all, he will judge justly. Right? That's what we know. We can count on God's character here. God will not be an unfair judge. And what I think we do see is the seriousness of sin. And we're going to take a really good look at that next week. The sinfulness of sin to where we would say every sin will be punished. Every sin will be punished. It will either be punished for the unbeliever throughout eternity in hell where it will never be paid off. And that's why hell is eternal. Or when we race to the cross, we accept Jesus being the propitiation for our sin that he took every one of our sins and paid for them. Took all of God's wrath on the cross. Every drop, that cup of wrath that he so, would you say, dreaded or feared in the garden to where he sweat blood was all poured on him um, at the cross. And then Jesus will judge mankind. We see that. Would you comment, uh, Grant, I know you had some thoughts on 16 there. Um, yeah. Uh, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so MacArthur, he separated this whole passage based on six points of judgment. First being knowledge, which we covered what they know, whether Jew or Gentile, truth, whether no matter if you uh, have an external religious veneer, he'll, he'll judge based on you internally, the truth about who you are, whether a hypocrite or not, guilt, because we're all uh, sinful before him, our deeds. He judges impartially, even though in here it says the Jew first and also the Greek. Uh, it's impartial because the Jews um, have no more special treatment. It's eternal life for both of us or eternal destruction for both of us. They just have primacy in the eternal life, but also primacy in the judgment. And then motives, which this last one I think is extremely um sobering even for the believer so motives mm -hmm. that God knows not just the things that we say or do or the actions that we take uh, on a day-to-day -day basis but the thoughts that we have and the motives behind why we do what we do and so for the unbeliever that is terrifying because everything they do is um, self-seeking at the core in some capacity or, or another um, and so God knows exactly what their motives are and the things that they do. But I was thinking, even though this is not primarily what it's talking about in this text, that for the believer, um, God also knows our motives and the secrets of our hearts. And when we are judged, we won't have condemnation. We know that from Romans 8. But everyone, you know, in Romans 14, we'll have to give an account of our life to, to Christ when we stand before him. And that, even though that doesn't invite you know, extreme fear because there's no condemnation, that I think should be extremely sobering to think about what a precious gift is the redeemed life. We don't want to waste it or squander it or use it unwisely. Um, we want to be pure in every thought, word, deed, and motive that we do. I'm glad. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think First Corinthians 3 gives us a really good indication of the believer's um, rewarding. Uh, 3.11 
for no one will lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one will um, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it, the day of, uh, of judgment, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. We will be rewarded on that day at the Bema Seat of Christ. Um, and if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss although he himself will be saved, but only through fire. I think really 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is fascinating here because I think it goes with what we're seeing in 2, 16. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time because the Lord, because the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He will disclose the purposes of the heart. So in this, God will truly reward you for what you have done um, in the right per, for the right purpose. And it won't be wood, hay, and stubble that will burn away things done for our own glory. And all of us have done plenty of those things, even as believers. Those will not receive a reward, but what's truly done for God's glory. And it's good for us to do some spiritual inventory, I think, and to say, it, am I doing what God's calling me to so that I can get some, you know, I kind of, hey, look at me, or truly for the Lord's glory? Josh, any thoughts there? I don't have any further thoughts, Jerry. Yeah, that's just a, um, I think Grant's right. Sobering um, to, to think about that. Um, in closing, Grant, what should we, what do we do this week? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How are we changed? What should we? What do you think? Anybody? Yeah, like just from what we've looked at, what what sticks with you? How should this stir us? What should change about the way we operate? Jerry, your comments on <clears throat> self-examination. Why are we doing what we're doing? Yeah. yeah. And don't you think none of us are ever in the 100% doing it for God's glory category, I don't think. You know, there's sin mixed in there that kind of convicting. What else? Well, I hope we hurt for the unbeliever. You know? And that, and we just see that God's wrath is coming upon them, and uh, and I think all of us know, boy, know a lot of unbelievers that need the Savior, and to go and to share the gospel as clearly and uh, passionately as we can. We are God's ambassadors. He has given us that opportunity. We know, and we're to implore them to be reconciled to God because right now Romans 5 would remind us they are sinners, they are weak, they are ungodly, 
and worst of all, they're enemies of God. And that's just a tragic, terrifying place um, that they're in. And so uh, go add them to pray for them and to uh, evangelize them, believe her. With all quasi, you're uh, one who's sets a very good example for us in that, and I appreciate your heart for that. And what I want that, I want that same sort of heart that you have for for the unbeliever. Josh, would you um, pray that um, we can take this to heart? Sure. Father, thank you for giving us another week to study your word. Thank you for giving us the Book of Romans. Uh, I pray that we would all seek to apply this teaching to our lives. Help us to go after the unbeliever. Help us to store up treasure in heaven. And Lord, help us to be warning others of the wrath to come. And I pray that we would be salt and light in the world this week. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you get some time, camp in uh, chapter 2, 17 to 29. And we'll see you, Lord willing, next week.